0: Over the last four weeks, um, we've been doing this series called Church Is, and basically the idea is uh, Church Is blank, and everyone can fill in the blank. Everyone has an opinion on what the church is, and if you're a Christian this morning, um, then you'll have an opinion. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, you wouldn't class yourself as that, and you'll have an opinion, and uh, we all have opinions about what the church is, and uh, what we've been doing the last four weeks is we've been trying to get back to what does the founder of this thing called the church, what does he think? Because actually what he thinks is more important than what I think or what you think. And so we've looked over the last four weeks at four different pictures in the Bible. Uh, different metaphors that Jesus uses to talk about this thing called the church. Okay, so, uh, And when we put a word in to, to try and describe that. So first week it was Church is Unstoppable and this lady here was then an army soldier. Do you remember that four weeks ago? So she was dressed as 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 a marine kind of thing and this whole idea that one of the pictures in the Bible is the church is an army. Not an army of aggression or violence or hatred but of love and grace and compassion. And then I've been away the last two weeks, speaking in uh, Southeast Asia. Been to three different countries. Had an amazing time there. And while I've been away, I have been listening to the podcasts. And Jane did a brilliant job two weeks ago talking about um, church is family, and it's messy, and it's picture of the family and there was a dining room table and she talked to you around her kind of traditions growing up as a family and and, you know church is the place where you sit around and you work out your stuff and your mess like you do in a real family and then last week Simon uh, and I listened to the podcast of that this week and, and he had a whole load of gym equipment and the idea was churches fit and the image and the, the picture, the metaphor is the body of Christ. And I heard on the podcast, Simon grunting and groaning as he was trying to demonstrate that equipment to you uh, last week. But he did a great job at that. And so, but this week, uh, and when we put the series together, I got the fourth week. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, church is beautiful. That's what we want to look at. Church is beautiful and this picture of the bride of Christ. Now right from the outset, I know this is difficult, blokes, guys, men, for us to engage with this picture, but it's in the Bible. Okay, it is in the Bible. We collectively, as the church, are known as the Bride of Christ. So you've not got to think gender here. You've got to think about what the picture is, is all about. Okay? So none of you we're not expecting any of you guys in church to dress up like that, all right, or anything like that. So you're gonna kind of get that image out of your mind, but think about this picture of the bride of Christ, which is us being united in relationship with the groom who is Jesus. And the question I want us to think about is this. Could God, the creator of the universe, ever see beauty in us? Could he ever see beauty in your life, in my life and in our collective life as an experience, as a community called the church? And whether you're a Christian this morning or not, I want to I go into this whole idea of beauty. And I know if you're a guy, you might struggle a little bit with that. But kind of bear with me and hang with me. Because I think that actually, even as guys, we understand beauty. We do. And could God ever see beauty in my life or in your life? And uh, let me just read something to you. This is um, a fable, uh, kind of a, like an old fairy story type of thing, really. But it's something that a guy, a Christian writer called Max Decardo, talks about. And he, he talks about um, this fable about a stately prince and a peasant girl who fall in love. And it's difficult to understand because on the one hand, the prince literally has the world at his disposal. There's never been a more perfect specimen of a man that had ever lived. Nothing about him was common. You wouldn't be exaggerating to say he was the perfect catch. Then on the other hand, there's this peasant girl. She's nothing more than average. At her best, she's plain. At her worst, she can just be plain ugly. There are times when she's cranky and moody, and she rarely ever achieves all she could. To look at her from anyone else's eyes, you'd never believe she was worth much. But if you could see her through the eyes of the prince, you would believe she was to die for. Because the prince determined that he couldn't bear to live without her. He asked her to be his bride. The angels in heaven listened expectantly as she accepted the proposal. The prince promised his bride that he'd come back for her soon. And the peasant-turned-princess pledged to faithfully await his return. To this point, the story could be any number of fairy tales. But now the plot takes a bizarre twist. Because you would expect the bride to be always thinking about the coming wedding. But she rarely ever mentions it. You would think that her every waking moment would be lived out in anticipation and preparation for the coming of her prince. But by the way she lives, you wouldn't even know she's the bride of a perfect prince. More frequently than not, you can't even tell the difference between the bride and any of the other peasant girls in the village. There are even times when she can be seen flirting with other men in the village in broad daylight, and who knows what she's doing when nobody is around to see So can you imagine a peasant girl fortunate enough to be the object of a perfect prince's eternal love? You'd expect her to be captivated by his love and filled with a sense of wonder that she was fortunate enough to be loved by him. You would think that she would be careful to remain pure in anticipation of the return of her royal groom. Instead, to look at her, you might wonder if she even remembers she's engaged at all. How could a peasant forget about her prince? Is it possible... For a bride to forget her groom, and I think that fable kind of kind of explains a little bit about this, this metaphor that, that God puts in the Bible, and the idea is that, that Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride, and we're waiting for his return again, because the Bible says that as he came as a baby, he's also coming again. And in that period, we're to wait faithfully and to live out the beauty that God sees in us. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honour to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's a, that's a reference to Jesus, the Lamb of the world, takes away the sin of the world. And his bride, us, has prepared herself. She has being given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. And this metaphor, we we don't understand it unless we understand a little bit about a Jewish wedding as compared to one of our weddings. I want to quickly go through this and then I want to give you three applications and then we're going to finish. So there are five stages to the Jewish wedding. The first one is called the Ketubah. And this is where the the groom goes and he finds the woman of his dreams and he goes to the father and he goes to the house and he negotiates a price for the woman. And it's a high price because he really loves her. And it reminded me about um, when me and Alison um, were going out together and we were on holiday with my family in Morocco. And I was about 19, 20, something like that. She was a year younger. Um, And and we we were wandering through a market and we love markets when you go overseas. They're so great. And if you've ever been to any of these kind of markets like in North Africa or other parts of the world, they love having a bit of a barter with you and a a haggle. Anyway, we are walking in this market and this fella comes up to me and he looks at Alison, 18 at the time, and he says, I give you 50 camels for the woman. And I thought about it and I looked back and said, make it 55 and it's a deal. <laughs> Didn't go down very well with Alison. And there's this kind of sense of negotiating a price. And that's what happened in a Jewish wedding called the Ketaba. So if that means that there's a price involved, what's the price for us? If we're the bride, well the Bible says, doesn't it, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1:18, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. You see, when God looks at you and I, he said, you know what? You are to die for. And he did. He did. And he paid the ultimate price so that he could have that relationship with us. And then stage two was a separation. The groom then would return to his father's house and he'd make preparations to be able to bring his bride home. And that's why some of the language in the Bible, we don't fully understand it, but in John 14, we think about this as heavenly language, it's more marriage language, where Jesus says there is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I, not have, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you when everything is ready, I'll come and get you so you'll always be with me where I am. That's really kind of a reference to what happened in weddings. Weddings. Because the the, the father would say, okay, son, off you go. Find your bride. He'd go negotiate a price. Then he'd go back to dad's house and he'd get the house ready. And then at some point in the future, dad's going to say, right, boy, now go get her. And he's going to go and bring her home. And this imagery is is this idea that the groom, Jesus, wants relationship with us more than anything else. And then stage three, that during this period of separation, the, the groom would send gifts to the bride. Because he wants the bride to know, it's not a matter of if I'm coming to get you, but when. And so he sends all these amazing gifts. And I'm so pleased this morning, aren't you, that our groom shows his love for us with more than words. But gives us gifts. How many of you know that's true? Every day we get gifts sent from him because he is so, he's so amazing and he's so generous. Step four was called the mikvah, which is, which is where there's a cleansing bath, where the bride prepares herself. is the same Hebrew word where we get the word baptism from. And we're having a baptism service next week. And uh, if you've not been baptized, you know, if you've already said, I will, and I do, to Jesus, okay, the next step is get baptized. We'd love to baptize you next week. It's not too late. Come and talk to me or to Simon, uh, and, and you can do that. But, but you see, this, this kind of preparation process is about... But until the groom comes, I'm going to be really ready and I'm going to prepare myself. Not like the peasant girl that lives like she's not even betrothed. She lives like there's nobody in her life that really loves her. And so she's looking around for love when she's already found it. And that's often what we can be as the church. And then the final thing is the uniting, where where the father says, "Okay, son, go get her. And he gives his approval and nobody knows. The groom doesn't know and the bride doesn't know. And often then in the night... The, the, the groom will come and he'll abduct the wife, the bride. That's what would happen in a Jewish wedding in the middle of the night. Uh, and there would be then this uniting together, the ceremony and the feasting and, of course, the consummation. So what does all this have to mean to us today? I want to give you three ideas. Number one, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? you see if you if you looked at the, in, uh, i know that was a little struggle for some but if you looked in the eyes of the of the, of the parents when they look at their kids you know there's beauty in the eye of the beholder the parent thinks their children are the most beautiful children on the planet isn't that right they do don't they they really do but unfortunately that's not always the case and uh, when we were when me and alison again were were uh, going out and there were a couple that were about 10 years older than us, so he became my my best man and they were kind of mentored us during that late teens, early 20s and they've got four kids and their, the oldest is a girl, Catherine, their next down, Andrew, was not a very pretty baby. In fact, he was really, really ugly. Uh, and, and Judith, the mother, would say this. This is what she said. So the funny thing was, I'd have the baby, Andrew, in the pram. We'd be walking down the street, and then someone would stop me, and they've not seen the baby. They'd say, oh, how are you doing? Everything okay? Oh, can I have a little look at him? And, he, and she said this. What would happen is they would peer into the pram, and they'd go, huh! and they'd literally jump back out. And she's, but what was brilliant is that she said this. I just used to say to people, I know, he's really ugly, isn't he? But we love him. But we love him. (laughs) That was brilliant. Because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And how many grooms, when they when at the front of church, okay, and the bride walks down, how many of the grooms look at her and just she's the most beautiful, stunning woman in the whole world, isn't she? Because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And actually, here's, here's for a, an ad in the newspaper. Farmer, age 35, seeks woman to marry, must have her own tractor. Please send a photo of the tractor. And you know, in some parts of the world, the larger a woman is, the more beautiful she is. And we've got lots of different nationalities here this morning. And this may be from your culture. And so there is a proverb from one of these cultures, and it says this, If your wife is on a camel, and the camel cannot stand up, your wife is truly Beautiful. because beauty is in the eye of the beholder and I want you to know folks if you're a Christian this morning and you're part of the church God thinks the church is beautiful now we think often and we act often like we're more like the bride of Frankenstein than the bride of Christ but that's not how God sees us so don't ever mess with what God says is the most beautiful thing on the planet which is the church And you might think, well, is that true for me as an individual? Does God see beauty in me as an individual? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Could God see beauty in your life? The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And that word workmanship literally means works of art or masterpieces. And it's like what, what God sees when he sees us is someone incredibly valuable and incredibly beautiful. You know, I've got in my pocket here a five pound note. And um, how much is that worth? Five pound, yeah, that's the value of that. I, 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 and it's worth five pound like that. But, you know, if I was to scrunch it like that, it's still worth five pound, isn't it? And actually, if I was to put it on the floor, and I know I shouldn't do this to the Queen, but if I was to put my foot on it and kind of grind it a little bit into the dirt, if there was dirt there, and then I lifted it up, not only is it now crumpled, but it's smashed down, and it doesn't look great, but it's still worth £5. And what I want you to know this morning is that no matter what life does to you, whether it crunches you up, whether it grinds you into the dirt, whether you get a little bit of stuff on you, whether you can't, you know, you have to unravel it, you are worth what God says you're worth. And the worth does not change just because of what happens to you. Because God looks at you and he sees beauty. Because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But secondly, beauty sees beyond what other people can see. You see, what what God sees in the church is the ideal of the bride. And, And the reality is, the church, okay, not just this church, but any church, we can be bureaucratic, inefficient, outdated, and ugly. We can be that, all of those things. But this thing called the church has given this planet 2,000 years of rich history and rich liturgy and theology and social action and schools and colleges and feeding the poor. That's what the church has been. Yes, we can be inefficient. Yes, we can be outdated. Yes, we can be ugly. But there is an ideal that God sees when he looks at the church and it's beautiful. The problem is an ideal can drive you in two ways. An ideal can drive you towards the fulfillment. So you and I can say, hey, we're not perfect as the church. And we are a little ugly sometimes. And we are a little bit more like the Bride of Frankenstein. But you know what? There's an ideal. And God says the church is beautiful. And let's work together to make that ideal a reality. That's what you can do. Or you can take the ideal and let it drive you away in disappointment. That's what many people have done. Maybe you've done that this morning. Maybe you've been a part of a church in the past. And somebody hurt you. Somebody messed up somebody was ugly, somebody was controlling or manipulative or sinful or wicked or whatever and you thought this is supposed to be the church, this is supposed to be this beautiful perfect bride of Christ and it's not beautiful and perfect and it's not the ideal so I'm going to walk away, I tell you what, listen before you, before you do that and that's the last thing you do, you're not perfect neither but God has never given up on you, so I want to encourage let's not give up on what God wasn't give up, won't give up on and that's the church, Let's let the ideal of this beautiful bride of Christ drive us to the fulfillment. Because if not, and this happens a lot with Christians these days, you're actually more in love with the idea than you are with the reality. How many marriages are perfect and absolutely beautiful? Of course they're not. It's an ideal and we're working towards it and we let it drive us on. We don't let it drive us away because beauty sees beyond us. And then the third thing is this. Beauty is the most stunning when it emerges from brokenness. I was preparing this message on, uh, while I was away, when I could snatch some time, and uh, uh, then I got to the end of the trip and thought, ah, I've got to preach this on Sunday. So on Thursday night, I'm sitting in the airport in Singapore, and I'm preparing this message, and I'm writing this bit. Beauty is the most stunning when it emerges from brokenness. And I'm in this open lounge, and as I'm writing that, on the big TV screen in front of me, the news comes on. And those shootings in Charleston in America come out on the screen and I'm just transfixed by what had happened. And I'm writing, beauty emerges, is most stunning when it emerges from brokenness. And right there on the screen I'm seeing such horrible, horrific brutality and brokenness. And it was very hard to carry on and I just prayed. And I didn't know what to say, like many of you, when we see something like that. But you know, on Friday, the Roof family, that's the family of the guy, the Roof guy that that is arrested and, you know, going to be tried, I'm sure, of doing those killings. They released a statement through their lawyer and it says this, Words cannot express our shock, grief and disbelief as to what has happened that night. We are devastated and saddened by what has occurred. We have all been touched by the moving words from the victims' families, offering God's forgiveness and love in the face of such horrible suffering. That's amazing, isn't it? And all of that ugliness and horror and brutality, and yet in the midst of that brokenness, there emerges a beauty. You know, Martin Luther King, who knew that church, who went to that church because that church was important in the civil rights movement, has got a real hit heritage and history. Uh, he went to that church and spoke from that church and he said this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover with this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And then only yesterday, the daughter of one of the victims, Ethel Vans, she said this, You took something very precious from me, but I forgive you. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you might think, Oh, that's a bit out there and that's a bit ridiculous. That is not a denial of pain. They are not saying this has not hurt us like crazy. It is not a, right, we don't need justice because we do. It is not a, let's not talk about the deeper issues of, of gun law and of hate crime and of racism and all these, because I think we do. But it's to say that in the midst of the brokenness, something beautiful can emerge. God can do that. Because when he looks at the brokenness of my life and your life, he sees beauty that can emerge out of it. You see it by, by what you see on the screens. You also see it when you travel the world and you see the church In its various shapes and sizes and colours. And and I've been away um, uh, over the last two weeks speaking in Southeast Asia. My first um, trip was to Brunei, the Kingdom of Brunei. It's an Islamic state on the island of Borneo. And just going there and spending time with this church where they live in this Islamic state where basically um, last year the the country went Sharia law. And, and so there's all these kind of difficulties that they've got. And if the church closes there, it can't open another one. So, so this church, this group of people that I was with, they're just so passionate to see God come. And, and so they said, well, we can't open another church. So how are we going to grow? Well, well, we'll open another congregation. So they've got two English congregations, a Chinese speaking, a Tamil speaking, a Malay speaking, and now an Iban speaking, which is the local indigenous people on the island. And I just saw such beauty that was emerging out of brokenness. And then went to Singapore and then went on to Malaysia and talking with different leaders and seeing in Singapore, very, very wealthy country, incredible standard of living. And yet seeing some of these churches there that got such a heart for the poor in in that part of Southeast Asia, sending people into Myanmar and Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia. And one one of the vicars that I was working with, he was also the dean of Nepal, and told me that, you know, he went out to Nepal and, and he was there and, and the Anglican church is growing in Nepal. In fact, Nepal is one of the countries in the world which have been most closed to, to the gospel, but are now opening up. And actually, there's the, one of the biggest growths of evangelical Christians in Nepal. And he said, but you know what? When the earthquake came, we lost so many people. I said, what do you mean you lost so many people? He says, my friends, pastors, leaders, members, gone. I so said, what do you mean God? He said, well, they're in the church. And then when the earthquake came, the building went and they're all crushed. And just literally, he was like, he's heartbroken. And he told me about all the times that he's been out there in these last few weeks. And he says, what you don't realize is that there was the big quake. But then I've been out there for four or five other quakes, which have all killed people. But you see, they're, they're kind of 5.4 on the Richter scale. In Japan or in America or in Britain, that probably wouldn't kill anyone. But in Nepal, where the housing is so poor, it kills people all the time. And yet out of that brokenness, something beautiful emerges as well. And I said to him, So what's the biggest church in Nepal uh, of your Anglican churches? And he I said, Is it in Kathmandu? Is it in the capital? It's bound to be. He says, No, it's in a village up a mountain. So get away. I said, Yeah. He said, Yeah, it is. I said, How many people are, are live in that village? He says, six thousand. I says, and how many people are in that church? He says, "1.2,000." I said, so there's 1,200 people from a village of 6,000 that go to church. How did that happen? And this is what he said. He says, well, one of the guys became a Christian in the village. And the village had gone from a Hindu and a Buddhist background. They were very close to Christianity. He said, and so they kind of shunned him away and nothing could happen. But then they went through a time when a lot of the children got sick in the village. And this is going to be a crazy story for some of you to get your heads around. But he said this, he said, some of the kids got sick in the village, so we turned, they turned to their shamans and their witch doctors and all of this and tried to help, and nothing helped these children. And then someone thought, I'll tell you what, why don't we speak to that guy who's just become a Christian? So they went to the Christian and they asked him to pray for these children. And he prayed for the children and nothing happened and the kids went to bed, but the next day they all woke up and they were all healed. They were all healed. And this village opened up to this guy and opened up to the gospel. And now just a few years later, this was only a few years ago, out of that brokenness has emerged this church of 1.2 thousand. Isn't that amazing? And when you see the church like that, you think, God, you are most stunning when beauty emerges out of brokenness. But I'll tell you something else that I discovered. And I thought about this in the airport on Thursday night. Then where else have I seen beauty emerge out of brokenness? And I thought, of you guys? And I thought of this room. And I thought of so many people that I could point out and I could say, your life, beauty out of brokenness. Because some of us in this room, we know what it is to have lost things, don't we? We know what it is to have lost people. Many of you this morning, you know, Father's Day will be hard because you'll be thinking of your dad or you'll be thinking of your mom. And you know that you've lost something. And it's painful and it hurts. Some of you've lost marriages. You know, you've lost businesses. You've lost friends. And there's a brokenness in that. But some of you also know that out of that brokenness, God has brought stunning beauty. And some of you have, uh, have got brokenness, not because you've lost things, but because you've made mistakes. You've made decisions that have caused hurt and brokenness and loss. But do you know what? When you gave your life to God, God took your life and he brought and he's bringing incredible beauty out of it, isn't he? I was praying for this woman in, in Malaysia and just felt God really speak to me over her life as he did on with many, many people out there and, and I just began to pray over the broken areas of her life and it was amazing how specific it became. And one of the pictures that God gave me was of a mosaic. And you know, a mosaic is basically a work of art but it's constructed from lots of broken pieces. And isn't that what God does with us? Isn't that? See, in this place here, a whole load of broken pieces. And there's some ugliness and some sharp bits and some, you know, stuff. But God, if we give him our life, God takes it and weaves it into a work of art. For we are God's workmanship. So I want you to know this morning that if you'll say I will, if you'll say I do, and become part of the bride of Christ, God is at his most stunning when he brings beauty out of brokenness. So how can we respond to this this morning? Well, I want to say just three very quick things. Firstly, be a part, be a part of the bride of Christ. Don't opt out. Don't opt out because we're not the ideal. Because to be honest, that's so immature. We're better than that. Yeah, we're not the ideal. You know, but, but don't opt out. Be part of making this the, the ideal that God dreams about. Make it a reality. Secondly, let's be ready. Let's live ready. Let, let, let's, let's, let's not be like that peasant girl that forgets that forgets that She's engaged to this incredible prince, let's not be like her, and then let's be excited, because there's a marriage coming, isn't there? God, Jesus says he's going to come again one day, and he's going to come again for the bride of Christ, with all of our ugliness, with all of our brokenness, but God working in his stunning best to bring beauty out of brokenness. So I want you to know this this morning, God sees beauty in you, God, if you're letting, will work something stunningly beautiful, even out of the brokenness of your life. But just like a wedding, there comes a moment when you have to say, I will and I do. Let's pray. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing. And this is a great song. It's very evocative in its language. and Very descriptive, very emotional as well. But it talks about just the jealousy that God has for us because he loves us so much. And I, if you're a Christian this morning, I just want you to get it again. God thinks you are beautiful because you are the bride of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, God thinks exactly the same about you. And God wants you to know that He sees beauty in your life. And if you will give Him the broken bits of your life, He can make something stunningly beautiful come from it. So, Father, I want to thank you. Church is unstoppable, it is messy. God, we're working for it to become fit. But God, in your eyes, it's beautiful. And Lord, I pray that we would catch a little tiny glimpse of the beauty that is in the eye of the beholder. Because when you look at us, you see something that we don't see. You see beyond. You see from completion, not just now. You see the ideal worked out into reality. So God, help us, I pray. Help us, I pray, to be that beautiful bride that you see in your eye and in your heart. And Lord, if there is brokenness in our lives, God, I pray that we will surrender it to you. And God, that we will say, yep, I will. I do. And Lord, we'll know that joy of you filling and flooding our life with your perfect, beautiful love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing. You know, the first service we sang this song, and one of, one of the guys uh, felt that God gave him what's called a picture. It's like an impression in his mind, uh, and he saw a picture of someone with a lot of broken pieces. You know, like I talked about the pottery and the mosaic, and they were holding it like that. It's a little bit like they were—they've been hurt so many times that they couldn't let it go. They were almost protecting the brokenness. And you know, I get that, but all the time you do that, nothing changes. Nothing changes. It's only when you go like that and when you give God the brokenness that he can then start to say, "Okay, let's start to have a look at this. And what what can we bring out of it? It's not going to change it. You know, my dad died six years ago. Nothing's going to change that. But you've got to give the brokenness of that pain to him and see God do something beautiful out of it. Or you can hold on to it and protect it and nothing changes. The choice is completely yours. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you. You're an amazing God. Lord, I want to pray that you would speak beauty and life into broken situations. Now I pray in Jesus' name. God, I pray for hope to come. Pray, God, for a sense of a new beginning and a new day in Jesus' name. God, I pray for for those of us that have been holding and protecting God to let go and to open up. And God, we're fearful and we're scared. I get all that. But God, nothing changes when we hold on and protect. But God, when we open up and let go, you can begin to do your best work. God, would you do it? Bring, bro- bring that brokenness into beauty, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. And you know, right, in the, in the minute, we're going to finish in a, a couple of minutes. And, you know, if any of you would like prayer this morning, you know, maybe you've got physical needs. We believe God heals physically. And, uh, or maybe there are other things that have come up out of this morning and you would like prayer through there in that room. There's some folks that would love to meet you and they just want to pray with you. Nothing weird or freaky. They just want to meet and pray. But you know, I want to finish by reading something I read many years ago. You know, this whole image of a bride of Christ means that we're a she. Okay, not a feminine thing, but there's a sense in which the church is, is called a she because because there's, there's, there's the groom, him, and there's us. So... Guys, it's not that we're feminine, but it's just that collectively there's this idea of a she. And I want to read this. This is about the church. She's a mystery, isn't she? Still going after all this time. After the Crusades and the Inquisition, and Christian cable TV. Still going. And there continues to be people like me who believe she is one of the best ideas ever. In spite of all the ways she's veered off track in spite of all the people who've actually turned away from God because of what they've experienced in church I'm starting to realise why the church is like a double edged sword when it's good, when it's on, when it's right it's like nothing on earth a group of people committed to selflessly serving and loving the world around them, great but when it's bad, all that potential gets turned the other way from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows sometimes in the same week sometimes in the same day But she will live on because she's indestructible. So when she dies in one part of the world, she explodes in another. She's global. She's universal. She's everywhere. And while she's fragile, she is going to endure. And in every generation, there will be those who see her beauty and give their lives to see her shine. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That's strong language and it's true. She will continue to roll across the ages, seeing and giving and connecting people with God and with each other. And people will abuse her and manipulate her and try to control her, but they'll pass on and she will keep going. Because that's the church. And she is beautiful. And if you say to me, I like you, Leon, but I don't like your wife. I'm not going to like you much. So let's be really careful before we badmouth the bride of Christ, because Jesus died for her. She ain't perfect, but she's beautiful. Amen. Great. We're going to celebrate as we finish and as we go this morning.